Hey, I'm Sam. Hi, I'm Ashley. And you're listening to All Bodies, All Foods, presented by the Renfrew Center for Eating Disorders. We want to create a space for all bodies to come together authentically and purposefully to discuss various areas that impact us on a cultural and relational level. We believe that all bodies and all foods are welcome. We would love for you to join us on this journey. Let's learn together. All right. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of All Bodies, All Foods. We've got Ashley and Sam here today, and we are so excited um, to share with you. We have a special guest with us today. We've got Fatima Javanji Shakir, LMSW, joining us to talk about the intersection of eating disorder and the Muslim populations. Um, So Fatima is an eating disorder and body image therapist, speaker, and writer. Her work is strongly informed by the health at every size perspective and intersectional approaches to healing. Fatima has a special interest in working with BIPOC clients, especially those of Muslim and South Asian backgrounds. Fatima is a therapist in private practice at the Conison Psychological Services, where she offers individuals and couples therapy, and board member of the International Association of Eating Disorder Professionals in the New York chapter. Fatima was most recently a primary therapist at the Renfrew Center. So thank you so much for joining us today. We're so excited that you're here. Thank you for having me. I'm excited as well. <laughs> Welcome. Um, Fatima, it's been a while since I've seen you. We, we've done IG Lives together. We were yeah. on TikTok <laughs> together. So it's so great to have you here on our podcast. I was wondering, would you be able to tell us a little bit about yourself and what got you interested in the mental health field? What got you interested in eating disorders specifically? We just want to hear your story. Yeah. So I think for me, it's always been eating disorders in particular. Um, The reason I say that is because when I was growing up, I was really fortunate that I was a part of of a lot of different multicultural communities. Um, I grew up in a, my hometown was predominantly Hispanic. Um, I identify as South Asian and Muslim. And on the weekends, I would spend a lot of time at my masjid community around other people Mm -hmm. who are also South Asian and Muslim. And I remember when we were going into high school, seeing a lot of friends who were white struggling with disordered eating, getting diagnosed, getting treatment, but noticing that my friends who identified as Hispanic or identified as South Asian and Muslim, their behaviors not necessarily being noticed as being disordered eating and therefore them not always getting help. And I think there was also a lot of stigma as well. Um, so that was kind of the first touch point for me where I was like, oh, this is interesting. Like why, like this, this person doesn't seem okay. Like why aren't they getting help? And then during my, I think it was my junior or senior year in high school, I had a sociology teacher who had us do a research project. So she was like, you could do anything you want. And my friend and I decided to look at like body image and like body satisfaction. And so we like mm-hmm. administered these surveys, like during all these lunch hours at school and like collected the oh. data and analyzed it and everything. And it was really interesting to kind of look at the demographics and how people of different races, like internalized mm-hmm. different body ideals um, and their experiences with like food and their family. And then for me, I think after that, it kind of just felt like a calling of like, 
I, I want to go in this field and, and make a difference, especially for people whose um, eating disorders are really under-recognized. Yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. So you were doing research on this as early as high school. Yeah. Yeah. I'm very fortunate to have had that sociology teacher because yeah. she sparked this whole like interest in me that I didn't really know existed prior to that. Yeah. Shout out to them for that. Because here you are, you know, Fatima, I have watched so many of your trainings and I recently watched the training you gave for the Renfrew Conference in 2022. And I learned so much. And one of the things that stood out to me, you had a slide um, talking about, um, you know, eating disorder recovery in Muslim populations and you had mentioned that eating disorders are 2.3 times higher in Muslim teens and body image dissatisfaction is 1.8 times higher in Muslim teens compared to their Christian classmates, which is similar to the research you were doing early on um, in (laughs) high school. Why do you think this is? Why do you think it's higher? Yeah, it's a good question. So there's two things that really come to mind. And the first thing that comes to mind for me is um, the fasting rituals in Islam. Mm -hmm. So a lot of different religions have fasting as part of their religious practice. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that in Islam, there's a lot more fasting practices that happen. So we have um, Ramzan, which is the 30 days of fasting that we do. Mm -hmm. And then there's also Yom Arafah. There's Ashura for people who identify as Shia Muslim. Um, And then there are other months where people can fast. It's not a requirement of the religion, but it's considered sunnah. So it's it's something that's recommended or suggested. And so there's Mm -hmm. two other months of fasting. Um, And in fact, um, some Muslims believe that the Prophet Muhammad um, would fast for one third of the month every single month of the year, um, aside from Ramzan when it was 30 days of fasting. And so there's Mm -hmm. a lot of fasting rituals and practices that are part of the religion. And so what research has shown is that fasting serves as a risk factor um, for disordered eating. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's the religion itself, but I think it's diet culture that's kind of intertwined with that idea of fasting, right? Mm -hmm. Which tells you that controlling your food consumption is going to allow you to lose weight and therefore Mm -hmm. be thin. And being thin is often seen as being really valuable. And I think if you're thinking also about um, Muslims who maybe are not living in Islamic countries, have migrated to Western places, a lot of times their families really want them to succeed and to have good Mm -hmm. lives and to be able to fit in with other people. And so if you're a Muslim person who's surrounded by a lot of Caucasian people, for example, people whose body shapes and sizes might be different from your genetics, your family might also encourage that weight loss because they want you to fit in. They want you to have your best chance. And it might be really well-intentioned, but I think it it kind of fuels into that disordered eating. And I think that it can also be exacerbated by the community around you. Um, So I remember growing up, you know, I was one of the few Muslim people in my school. And so people would often make comments like, oh, like, I wish I had the self-control to go all day without Mm. fasting or like, wow, like, 
you know, it, it's so amazing that, that you can go without food and water all day. And so when you're already feeling othered and different and mm-hmm. you know, people are making comments that make it seem like you're valuable and there's something special about you because you can engage in this restriction and this refrain, mm-hmm. it can really perpetuate that because you don't want to lose that feeling of like, I'm special or, or people are looking up to me, which can also bring on this kind of moral superiority and that pressure to, to really continue engaging in these right. practices that are harmful when kind of taken out of the context and um, the, safe, the safety gears that are kind of in place within Islam of how to practice fasting. Right. That I'm makes just a thinking, lot of sense. Yeah. I, and I was thinking that that sense of feeling you know, of somebody kind of congratulating you and feeling that way mm-hmm. instead of feeling like the other, um, that's got to be so kind of motivating, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. And, it, you know, these religious practices, there's a purpose behind them. And they just it just so happens that it aligns with diet culture where mm-hmm. there are so many folks who it, it sort of like provides that false sense of accomplishment and discipline and the morality and all of that tied in. I could really see how that would be so reinforcing yeah. to hear that from your peers. And mm-hmm. I think this is so helpful for anyone listening, just to know what not to say to someone mm-hmm. who it is fasting for religious reasons, how, how those things can be really sort of reinforcing and can feed into someone who has maybe a vulnerability to have an eating disorder. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we don't know who, um, you know, has the genetic vulnerabilities, the psychological vulnerabilities. Right. This could be someone who um, is struggling and we, and we don't know. So, so kind of thinking about that, um, Sam and Fatima, thinking about like the Muslim populations, what what might be some unique challenges that they might experience with eating disorder treatment specifically and or eating disorder recovery, you know? Yeah. So I think kind of bouncing off of that idea of fasting, right? I think if someone's in recovery, it can be really Mm -hmm. hard to decide, like, am I going to fast um, Mm -hmm. when when there's a holiday, right? There can be a lot of social pressures coming from family and friends because there's a lot of community, um, around the different fasting holidays. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, if you're making that decision of like, do I engage in fasting or do I not? You might be scared that like people are going to judge you or they're going to ask questions. Maybe you're worried they're not going to understand that you're experiencing an eating disorder. You might Mm -hmm. also not want to feel left out, right? You might want to do what all your friends and family, um, are doing. And so Mm -hmm. what I've seen some people do in recovery is, you know, understanding that like, okay, I might not be in a place to fast right now, but I'm going to pretend to fast when I'm in public spaces, like at the mosque, because I don't want people to ask me questions. Mm -hmm. And while that might be done with a really good intention of like, okay, I'm going to try to protect my recovery. It can still really trigger the eating disorder because that person might refrain from eating for a couple of hours while they're at the mosque. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, in treatment, especially I think the lack of access to halal foods um, mm-hmm. is is a huge thing um, because mm-hmm. many Muslims who do eat halal diets 
um, often when they're going to treatment centers, will adopt a pescatarian diet or a vegetarian diet um, while they're they're in a program. Um, and so, in many ways, that can this can actually reinforce the eating disorder because they're restricting. Mm-hmm. Right? They might be right. restricting meat that they would normally eat, and so this can make the idea of really implementing recovery difficult, especially outside of a, a programmatic setting. Yeah, and in addition to that, the eating styles and eating cultures within programs are often not reflective of what's happening at home. So in a yeah. lot of Islamic um, communities, there's a lot of communal eating, like everyone's sitting around like a really, it's it's like a round, a large plate, oftentimes it's called a thal. There's different versions of it depending okay. on the culture, but there's communal eating and everyone kind of sharing from the same plate. When that doesn't it isn't reflected within a program, it can bring up this idea of like, well, how do I do this when I'm not in this very controlled mm-hmm. setting, right? Yeah. Um, so I think that can really increase the risk of of relapse as well. Yeah, mm-hmm. that is that's so interesting. I'm and I'm so appreciative of you even sharing this. I think, I think just even in my own journey as I've learned and grown, you know, as a person, as a therapist, as, as someone that's, um, really trying to better understand, um, different cultures. I identify as a cisgendered white female, you know, um, often I do feel like programs are set up for cisgendered white females, (laughs) Mm -hmm. right? And so, and I'm even thinking about some of the food that we've offered and served before, and I would not have thought about this idea of providing a halal meal or that communal bowl or plate for all of us to kind of eat from. I mean, that, that makes so much sense what you're saying. Yeah. And I think it can also, um, make the person question the validity of the eating disorder, right? Like if treatment isn't set up in a way that mirrors my life, yeah. Like, is what I'm going through like real? It can bring up questions. Sure. About, I'm making it. Is am I making this up? You know, mm-hmm. um, which can be really hard because someone might already be facing that from family, from friends, from society. Of like, is your eating disorder real? And so that can really um, get reinforced. And I think it can also fuel that sense of disconnection, right? So if mm-hmm. your culture around food is based on connecting with others and community and in your recovery process that the way that that's implemented looks different Mm -hmm. you know I think it it can fuel disconnection which can also then continue fueling the eating disorder Mm -hmm. right I mean if someone comes into treatment and they're not seeing the foods that they're used to they're not eating Mm -hmm. in the ways they're used to it's going to probably create some pretty strong emotions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that would in turn make them possibly turn to the eating disorder for comfort. Mm-hmm. So it really makes a lot of sense that, you know, really how important it is to have cultural humility in, in eating mm-hmm. disorder treatment. So I'm curious, you know, I think also um, I've seen videos where you've talked about diet culture's role in and sort of demonizing cultural foods. And I was wondering if you could say more mm-hmm. about that because I think that can play into the eating disorder as well. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, Sam. And, you know, I often think about it more, like from the treatment lens in terms of the meal plans that we create for clients, 
right? So I think different cultures, first of all, have different styles of eating. Some cultures might include more carbohydrates or as compared to protein or more vegetables as compared to a carbohydrate, et cetera, right? Like the kind of quantities that are considered normative in different cultures and different religions is really going to vary place to place. And I think the meal plans that are often used by dietitians, both eating disorder dietitians and and otherwise, are often reflective of um, Western standards of what it Mm -hmm. means to have a quote-unquote balanced diet. Mm -hmm. So if you're prescribing a meal plan to a client that maybe says, okay, you need this much protein in a day, but maybe the client's never grown up eating that much protein in a day Mm -hmm. in their whole life. Right. that meal plan becomes really difficult to implement, again, outside of a very controlled setting. And so then I think what what it does is it kind of reinforces the demonizing the diet culture does Mm -hmm. of, for example, like carbohydrates, right? Diet culture often tells us Mm -hmm. like carbs are bad, carbs are going to make you gain weight, all all those great things. And then if you're receiving a meal plan as well-intentioned as it might be that says, okay, well, this is how many carbs we're recommending that you eat in a day, the client might feel like, oh, wait, okay, like maybe eating more carbs than this is like actually bad. It's not good for me. And so it can kind of create that separation of like, okay, well, now I need to dissociate and disconnect a bit from my culture so that I can be what Western culture deems as being healthy or being valuable. Wow. And so that can really create Mm. a lot of shame around Mm. the way your family does things and the way your culture does things. And again, intense emotions, shame fuels eating disorders. So Mm -hmm. I'm wondering what would your suggestion be for maybe dietitians who are working with a Muslim client and their client is telling them, I, I usually eat more carbs than this. How, how, how do you think the dietitians should navigate that conversation? That's a good point and I, or a good question. And I think the first thing is to ask an open-ended question because mm-hmm. you know, when we think about the culture of respect and what is considered appropriate or not appropriate to say to someone of authority, a Muslim client may potentially not even feel comfortable. And I I don't say this to speak for all Muslims because obviously people have different personalities, but but culturally, you know, they may not be comfortable being upfront with you and and, Mm -hmm. and telling you like, hey, this, this isn't really reflective of the way that I eat or that my family eats. And so I think, you know, if a provider can really approach it with a sense of curiosity of like, hey, let's understand, like, what did meals look like Mm. when you were growing up, right? What does your family eat? Help me understand the different components of that, the style of eating. Then you are, you're really inviting a bigger picture, Mm -hmm. right? Of, you know, you're not asking about like, okay, well, how many meals and snacks were there? you're leaving it open. Maybe there's more than three meals. Maybe Mm -hmm. there's fewer meals, but a lot more snacks. Mm -hmm. And so when you ask it in an open-ended way, then you open the door for you and the client to really understand, like, what is the culture of food in my family and in my community? And then how can we build a meal plan that is really reflective of that, that allows me to participate in my my life Mm -hmm. um, in a sustainable way? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Well, I think it just goes to show how important it is that you're really gathering so much information from your client about their culture and understanding every detail about, Mm -hmm. about, you know, the the norms around eating and, and, you know, family. And that's another thing I would love to ask you more about is the family work. Um, But yeah, how important it is to really start from a place of curiosity and creating Mm -hmm. that safe space that safe space for your clients to really open up about, Mm -hmm. about the way that, you know, they culturally do things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm even thinking about like food rituals at this point, Fatima. And Mm -hmm. for, for our listeners out there, a food ritual is something that our clients might engage in um, to maybe soothe or settle some anxiety that they're experiencing when um, a food is placed in front of them. So they might cut things up really small. They might push things around, you know, on their plate, but I'm thinking about food rituals and, um, maybe some behaviors um, that someone might engage in just on a normal capacity in the Muslim population and or how that might affect their eating disorder recovery. Any thoughts about food rituals and kind of that impact on eating disorder recovery? And just to go off what you're asking, Ashley, like I'm wondering, you know, specifically in treatment centers, are there behaviors that are pathologized when it's actually just part of a normal client's culture? Yeah, yeah, cultural behavior. Yeah. 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 So I think the first thing worth recognizing is that, you know, depending on the Islamic sect that somebody is a part of, there mm-hmm. can be certain food rituals that are actually like a part of the culture. So mm-hmm. for for me and for the sect that I identify with, we start every meal with like a little taste of salt. And that's regardless of whether it's breakfast, lunch, or dinner, mm-hmm. it's, it's a part of the practice. Mm-hmm. And in, in some Muslim sects, there's also like an order of eating, right? Okay. So especially if you're eating communally, um, where food is kind of set out, like you might start with a sweet, then move to a savory dish, back to a sweet, back to a savory dish, and potentially ending with like rice as as the last part of that meal. And mm-hmm. so there can actually be an order to the way that we eat that I think in, in in my experiences working with an eating disorder, sometimes if we're seeing clients who are eating in a specific order, we might see that as being a disordered practice, but it can actually be a cultural right. norm. Right, me. absolutely. Right. It's sort of like, you know, you have sometimes counselors who are monitoring meals and their job mm-hmm. is to look out for food rituals because, yeah. you know, food rituals sort of keep an eating disorder alive. Yeah. And if they're not aware that this client has these cultural practices, they could be marking down that this yeah. client is engaging in eating disorder behaviors during the meal and they're not. Or maybe it, challenging them even. Like I'm thinking or about- redirect. I'm, yeah. Right. Yeah. Redirecting. redirecting. Like I, I have sat across so many people kind of coaching and trying to help them, right, consume their food. And I'm just, my mind is racing right now, truly. <laughs> like- Oh my goodness, have I have I redirected someone when they were experiencing something or engaging in something that was just culturally appropriate, right? Like mm-hmm. that. I'm so happy you're on here today, Fatima. <laughs> I feel like I'm learning so much. Well, <laughs> and I'm always glad to hear that. And it's also really yeah. great to be here. Oh, I've learned so much from your trainings. It's been amazing. <laughs> you know, I'm thinking about 
you know, excessive use of condiments is a ritual. And if I, you know, if a counselor would see someone mm-hmm. eating salt before the meal, they might immediately right. think, right. oh, this is someone who is either using a condiment to mask the taste of the food or they're using the mm-hmm. condiment, using salt maybe to water load or, you know, some of those more extreme eating disorder behaviors. And it really shows how important it is for the team to communicate with each other. Yeah. Where, you know, to be aware that this client might engage in these behaviors, but it's not part of the eating disorder at all. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it be- it begs us. I mean, you said this already, Fatima. It begs us to be curious um, mm-hmm. about the whole picture. I mean, just continually as their providers and really as the people that are providing that safe space, you know, or wanting to provide that safe space for them. We have got to be curious about where our clients and peoples are coming from. I mean, we have to, right? And we can't assume. Um, we can't assume that they're a part of our culture or that that we have done things the same way, you know, growing yeah. up and things like that. Yeah. And I think one exercise, um, actually Maggie Hartman at Renfrew um, introduced yeah. exercise to me, but it's called the family table, right? Okay. Where you ask the client to really just like, draw out like what did Mm -hmm. your family meals look like Mm -hmm. when you were growing up and what I Mm -hmm. loved about that exercise when I would implement it I would try to change it from family table to family meal um, because it allows clients to really think about well did we eat at a table did we sit on the floor did we eat on the couch you know like you know in in Islamic especially the sex that I'm a part of we will typically eat meals on the floor in this communal setting. Mm-hmm. Um, and so an activity like that, I think really invites that curiosity of like, let's understand what it mm-hmm. looks looks like for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I think it's just a really beautiful exercise to kind of remove our blind spots as clinician to clinicians to invite new information that might just never have been privy to. Well, I think it's an example of, that's like an open-ended question. You know, here's a blank piece of paper. You tell me what mealtime was like for you. And Mm -hmm. really it's our job as clinicians to just learn in the beginning about our clients and, you know, just really sit back and really try to understand. So speaking of families, I'm wondering, um, you know, we, on this podcast, we talk a lot about the importance of family work and eating disorder recovery. And I'm curious what you think providers need to understand when working with Muslim families who have a loved one in eating disorder recovery. What do you think are the most important things that, whether it's a therapist or a dietitian or a psychiatrist, Mm -hmm. really anyone, what, what do they need to know? So I think the first thing to recognize is that Islam typically operates from a very collectivistic point of view. Um, And so what that means is that a client's family may want and need to be heavily involved in the recovery Mm -hmm. process, regardless of the client's age. I think oftentimes we use the legal standard of 18 years old means that you're an adult. And so we might not provide like family sessions to a client, um, whether that's therapy, psychiatry, or or even dietetic sessions um, once they're 18 or above. Mm. But the idea of family and, and, you know, the idea of us versus 
an you looks very different in mm-hmm. an Islamic religion. And who is considered part of that of the family is also going to look really different. So oftentimes in Islam, people who are not even blood related to you are seen as like your your Muslim brothers and sisters. Right. Mm -hmm. So when we then think about the context of like, well, who is family? You might see grandparents, you might see aunts, uncles, cousins want to be involved in the treatment process. Uh, And that's largely because they're considered part of the immediate family. Right. I think in Western cultures, we think of your immediate family as being like your parents and your siblings. But that's often not the case in a lot of collectivistic cultures. And so, you know, one, we should always check with the client, like, are you comfortable with these individuals being part of your treatment? Who do you want to be a part of your treatment? Mm -hmm. And recognizing that, you know, there might be a little bit more that we provide and some things that we provide that are different for Muslim clients than we might for for other people who are of a same, of a similar age range. Mm -hmm. I think that's so important for therapists to know because I think sometimes maybe with greener clinicians, you know, maybe ones who don't have much experience or they're not culturally informed, they might even pathologize if there are multiple family members that want to be, a, or friends and family that mm-hmm. want to be a part of the process. I mean, I'm thinking about, you know, the term enmeshment, you know, it's yeah. sort of mm-hmm. like, I think, you know, some clinicians are at risk of maybe even using those terms. Like it's a negative thing that your family is so involved or your family must have collapsed boundaries if, you know, Mm -hmm. if they're too involved. And the reality is like, this is how many cultures feel, you know, many populations is how they feel supported in a collectivist Mm -hmm. culture. It's wanting and needing that support from their family and friends and loved ones and the family is really extended. Yeah. And who we perceive that enmeshment to happen with might actually be that client's greatest supporter in recovery. Mm -hmm. It's when you think about family roles and gender dynamics that can show up in a lot of Muslim communities, oftentimes like a client's mom might have the most sway with a client's dad, right? Or like if a client, for example, is female and has a brother, the brother might be that client's greatest ally in in communicating to the family and helping them understand what's going on because right. of the gender and power dynamics that are often given to males. Now, I'm not saying that like that is something that the client wants to ascribe to or really wants to participate in. But, you know, I think what we can do is we can work with a client to understand, okay, what are the things that you're wanting to work on? And how do you want to rank them? So maybe the client isn't comfortable with these gender dynamics that exist in their family. Um, But perhaps what's more important to them in this moment is making sure the family understands the eating disorder and is a part of that recovery. In which case, like if they're wanting to play into those gender dynamics to support their recovery right now, it's okay for us to do that and to then later work on this issue, right? Mm -hmm. But again, I think it goes back to that idea of like, we might perceive the client and these other loved ones as being enmeshed. And at the same time, those people might be the client's biggest advocates and allies in the recovery process. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Exactly. And just, just again, that term enmeshment, I think even as a, you know, as a, a therapist, 
I feel like we have kind of a negative connotation with it, right? And um, and that truly may not be the experience of our client, um, kind of what we're thinking. So really, um, yeah, really kind of understanding that for each individual client that walks in, um, that family can look very different than what we had perceived it as. And I think that boundaries can also look different depending on the culture, right? I think Mm -hmm. in in the U.S. and other Western places, we look a a lot towards individualism and this idea that it's about me. And in other cultures that operate a little bit more collectivistically, it is often about the us, right? The boundaries between individuals are lesser so. and. Mm You know, I think a lot of times that's pathologized when really mm-hmm. it, we can look at it as, as a way of like, well, this person may have a lot of community for healing, a, a huge support system mm-hmm. because of the level of closeness that they have to, to other people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I was thinking about boundaries too, as, as you were kind of talking even about the enmeshment, just like, I mean, just even thinking about, you know, my own self as a therapist, how we can be like, okay, we're going to work on boundaries today. We're going to work on this. And it, and it's like, wow, that, that truly someone might have a different experience and that right might really be changing or shifting a perspective that they have always lived under, which isn't necessarily harmful for them, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. which also, you know, now that you say that, Ashley, is making me think about like the dynamics between providers and Mm -hmm. clients in Mm -hmm. the recovery process, right? Where I think, you know, I don't know about the two of your trainings, but in my training, we're taught taught a lot about like having boundaries as a clinician, right? Right. So if the boundaries that you are kind of ascribing to a situation are conflicting with the boundaries that a client has been taught based on their culture, I wonder how that's going to impact the therapeutic Mm -hmm. relationship as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's just really helpful reminders. Even, you know, I know all three of us practice. Um, We all do different things, but we also all have practices. And, And so this is just really incredible information to be reminded of. Yeah, it's, this is so helpful. And, you know, as we talk about these different terms that can be really pathologizing. Um, Mm -hmm. I I remember from one of your trainings, you helped clinicians understand the ways in which certain therapeutic modalities, even evidence-based ones, it's like, you know, in this field, it's, it's, you know, the evidence-based modalities are really pushed and, you're so you can really be made to believe that these modalities can be helpful for anyone across the board. And mm-hmm. in one of your trainings, I remember you talking about how there are certain modalities and certain approaches that can actually be harmful to Muslim mm-hmm. clients. And I was wondering if you could say more about that because it might surprise a lot of the clinicians out there who maybe rigidly sort of stick to a certain approach. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, So one of the things I often think about is informed consent when we're going Mm -hmm. to utilize a therapeutic modality with a client. So if we think about like modern day mindfulness and meditation practices and the way that they're really implemented in Western societies, um, those practices have a lot of roots in Buddhism and Hinduism. 
yeah. right? And oftentimes clinicians aren't informed of those roots and then yeah. also aren't informing clients about it. So it's not yeah. that a client can't engage in those practices. It's that as clinicians, I think we hold an ethical responsibility to inform a client that the, these practices are rooted in these belief systems. And are you okay with that? Mm-hmm. Right? Do you mm-hmm. want to move forward with trying out this tool? And mm-hmm. if not, do you want to think about a way that we could potentially adapt it that's more religiously or culturally aligned for you? So I think about with Muslim clients who maybe aren't comfortable with traditional meditation practices that often Mm -hmm. include music that has tones of Hinduism in it. Mm -hmm. Um, They might be like, okay, I'm not okay with that, but I'm okay with perhaps like Quran recitation or prayer as being my form of meditation. Mm -hmm. And that might work for them. And that Mm -hmm. is completely okay. It's okay for us to adapt practices according to clients' belief systems. And I think about that also with dialectical behavioral therapy, right? That's often used okay. for the treatment of eating disorders, or we at least pull on skills from yeah. DBT um, to help people with eating disorders. And, you know, I think an approach like that is really rooted in individualistic ideals, the idea that you need to be able to self-regulate, have the skills to take care of yourself. Right. But again, if you're coming from a collectivistic background where the idea is that, you know, we rely on each other, that we co-regulate, that can really conflict with what someone's culture and religion has taught them. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it doesn't mean that we can't teach the client DBT skills, but maybe we involve a caregiver or a supportive Mm -hmm. person in that to be like, okay, let's all learn these together so that when the individual is in distress, you can co-regulate using the skills together. Yes. You're blowing my mind. (laughs) Yes. How would you, how, if you had a client and you brought in a caregiver, how would you sort of work through that, the co-regulation? So I think I would reframe the idea of like, who was the client here? Right. So oftentimes we see the person as the eating disorder with the client, but if we think about it as like, okay, this unit, right? Like Mm -hmm. perhaps it's the child and the parent or the client and their partner are the unit, are the, are the client together that we're working with. Then we can walk them through the psychoeducation of like, okay, this is what this skill looks like. This is why we practice it. This is when we can implement it. And then we can all practice that skill together, Mm -hmm. right? So maybe the supportive person who's participating in treatment practices the skill thinking about a time that they're in distress, right? Of mm-hmm. How do I tolerate that distress? And really what they're doing then is they're showing the person with the eating disorder, okay, here's an example of how we can regulate. And now mm-hmm. how do we apply that to the problem that you're facing? And mm-hmm. let's do this together, right? If what you need in this moment is to hold ice, right? To really feel that temperature difference in your body. Let's each hold a piece of ice and make Mm -hmm. observations about what that feels like for us. Mm -hmm. Mm I love that. I do too. (laughs) That's beautiful. (laughs) We need need more of that in therapy. More co-regulation. Yes. Absolutely. I love the sound of it. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So I think also I remember you talking about CBT. I mean, we hear about CBT Mm -hmm. all the time in this field, sort of like the, I've heard it referred to as the gold standard 
you know, before in different, you know, settings. And I'm curious what your thoughts are about CBT and Muslim populations. Yeah. So I think cognitive behavioral therapy can be effective for a lot of people. And when we're not conscientious about how we implement it as clinicians, it can also perpetuate trauma. Um, So one of the common ones I think about is cognitive reframing, right? Which is where, you know, we might think about a thought that we're having Mm -hmm. and then think about like, okay, what alternatives could be true? Are there other ways of looking at the situation that might also be accurate, right? Mm -hmm. And I think we often implement that with really good intentions, but when clients, especially Muslim clients, are often facing discrimination, Islamophobia, racism as well, I think if we're not cautious about how we're implementing a tool like that, we can actually invalidate their experience, right? And say like, discrimination that you're facing, Mm -hmm. maybe that wasn't discrimination, right? Which can Mm -hmm kind of, I think for a client, it can feel like we might be gaslighting them. Mm -hmm. And then they might also feel like they're gaslighting themselves by trying to convince themselves that what they experienced isn't really accurate or real. Right. Or, 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 or even worse, the therapist saying that's a distorted thought. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and calling them cognitive distortions. Like there's something wrong with that thought and we have to change Mm -hmm. it because that thought's making you feel bad. When Mm -hmm. in reality, that could, that is the client's experience in life and their fears are valid and their anxieties are valid. And it's more about maybe, you know, putting those emotions into action with advocacy and social justice work rather than trying to change the thought in some way. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of the thoughts that we have we have because of the experiences we've been through, right? And so if we've been through something similar and then another thing happens, well, it makes sense that we're going to think, oh, that's racism. I've experienced that before. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, right. I mean, that. I, I'm saying this as somebody who loves a good reframe. That, <laughs> yeah, oh my goodness. Like it's just more, It's this is more food for thought. Well, I think cultural dynamics and family dynamics are yeah. another one, right? Because yeah. based on your culture, different actions and interactions can hold different meanings, yeah. right? And so when we interpret those same behaviors and interactions through a Western lens, they might mean very different things. And mm-hmm. so what a client might see as like, well, this behavior meant that my mom was upset at me. Another right. person might say like, well, can we reframe that in another way, right? Mm -hmm. What's, like Sam said, the distortion in that thought, but the client's perception might actually be really spot on based on the cultural norms that Mm -hmm. they've observed. Right, Mm -hmm. right. Mm -hmm. That really the clinician's job in that moment is just to validate Mm -hmm. empathy, validation, and when, you know, if you're really heavily reliant on CBT, it can go wrong pretty quick. Yeah, um, yeah. And it could really impact, I think, the relationship between the client and the therapist. Mm-hmm. Well, if you're not feeling validated, you know, at all. Of course, right. <laughs> That's not, I mean, that it, you're going to leave therapy feeling pretty down on yourself, truly. Like, am I am I even living life right? Like what is going on here? Right. Right. Or just to feel so misunderstood. Yeah. Yeah. 
So I'm curious, Fatima, in your training at the Renfrew Conference in 2022, you talk about the intersection of Islam, gender identity, and gender expression. Um, What do clinicians need to understand about um, the intersection of these two and how can we best support our Muslim clients who are exploring their gender identity or identify as non-binary or trans? Yeah. So in Islam, things tend to operate in a gender binary, right? So depending on the gender that you ascribe to or that has been ascribed to you, there can be different kinds of clothing that people wear, Mm. different areas of the mosque that you might sit in, that you might pray Mm -hmm. in. Even the way that you pray, um, Mm. depending on the Islamic sect that you're in, can be different based on on the gender that has been ascribed to you. Um, And so this binary can be especially exacerbated when someone is exploring their gender identity or doesn't identify within that binary. Um, It can bring up questions like, where do I fit in? What should I wear? Where am I allowed to be when I'm in, in the mosque, right? And it can really open the door for that person to be bullied more and judged Mm -hmm. more and feel like they don't have a place where they belong. Um, either in the mosque, in their community, or, or even within Islam. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think sexual orientation can, it, you know, play a role in this as well. Um, a lot of people in Islam will see heterosexualism as being a sin. Um, mm-hmm. And I've okay. met a lot of people who have been told, well, you know, it's a sin to be heterosexual, but it's even more sinful to act on it. So you shouldn't act on 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 what brings you pleasure, right? And so it can really send that message that like, you need to hide who you are. You need to control this aspect of your life. And Mm -hmm. so someone might engage in the eating disorder as a way to control their life and control Mm -hmm. their gender identity or their Mm -hmm. sexuality, um, or even to escape or dissociate, right? They might Mm -hmm. be seeking safety from, from what feels um, harmful or dangerous to them. And so I think as clinicians, what we can best do to support clients is to create a space where they can be their authentic selves, right? So I think this goes back to what we talked about earlier of asking open-ended and really exploratory questions rather than asking yes or no questions. Because when we ask a yes or no question, we're putting the client back into the binary that they might already feel really trapped in. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think about that a lot. And then, you know, I also think about helping the client find ways of engaging in the religion if they want to engage in the religion in ways that feel really safe for them. So are there places and communities where there isn't segregation um, in terms of how people Mm -hmm. sit at the mosque or how they pray? And would the client feel a lot more welcome there? Mm-hmm. Um, are there communities that they could be a part of where there's other non-binary, trans, um, LGBTQ um, folks where they can feel that sense of safety and community? A lot of times that will come online, right? Because if they're yeah. going to a physical space, they might feel like that poses a threat that people might find out, but there might be online communities where they can feel that sense of connection and community. I know we're we're kind of like coming down <laughs> to time here. <laughs> oh, I wish are we there, had more time. I know. Are there just in general, first of all, I feel like we could have you on for another hour and just keep <laughs> going and, and talking about stuff. Um, 
Are there resources? I know you do talks and you do trainings. What can we leave with our listeners today? Um, how can they listen to you? How can they connect with you? Or what resources can we offer them today? Yeah. So if they'd like to connect with me, um, I'm on Instagram. Um, my Instagram handle is at your South Asian therapist. Um, I post about things related to South Asian clients, related to Muslim clients on there, and I'm accepting clients for therapy as well. I think some other places that are great resources is um, the Institute of Muslim Mental Health. Um, there's the Khalil Center, which has all Muslim providers. So if you're looking for someone who really has that religious understanding, um, I know they have sites in New York and Chicago. I think LA and Texas are, are other locations that they're a part of as well. Um, and then I also offer a lot of different trainings on these topics. So if people are wanting to bring, you know, any of these topics into organizations, schools, mosques, masjids, et cetera. Um, I'm always happy to be contacted. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, will you come you. back for next season? We need to talk <laughs> more. Yes. I love it. Thank you oh. so much for this conversation. And thank you to our listeners for another episode of All Bodies, All Foods. This was really informative for those of you out there who are wondering more about eating disorders in the Muslim community. If you liked this episode and learned from us, you can support us by subscribing, rating, leaving a review, sharing with others. And if you want more, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. Our handle is at Renfrew Center. For free education events, trainings, webinars, resources, and blogs, go over to our website, www.renforcenter.com. And if you have any questions you'd like us to answer in a future episode, be sure to email them to podcast at renforcenter.com. See you next time. Thank you for listening with us today on All Bodies, All Foods, presented by the Renfrew Center for Eating Disorders. We're looking forward to you joining us next time as we continue these conversations.